Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly fix of all things royal brought to you by Mail Plus. I'm Jess King, standing in for Joe Elvin this week, and here's what we've got coming up. What Harry did next, a new twist in the Prince's TV journey. A tour to Scotland, but do these visits build or bruise the union? And Princess Diana's wedding dress is being put on display to the public. We've got all the details. But first, Prince Harry's ventures into TV have made global headlines and provoked a mix of admiration and fury. Some of the angriest critics are among his own family. Now, this week, we've heard that there's more to come. Earlier, the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, brought us up to date. And I started by asking her about the new show. Well, this is a one-off show, which there are some people who might be rather relieved to hear that. Um, and it's basically Harry and Oprah holding what they call a town hall, which is a kind of open forum with some of the people who've taken part in their mental health series, The Me You Can't See, including the actress Glenn Close. And it's uh, basically a discussion uh, of mental health issues and looking at a way to go forward with them. And Rebecca, what's all the fuss about a bike ride? Yes, the bike ride. So uh, this has been commented on quite a lot. Um, th there have been people, the Daily Mail and other organisations, pointing out there have been quite a lot of inconsistencies in what Harry and Meghan have been saying over recent weeks and months. And the bike ride is one example of this. Harry mentioned in his Oprah interview, and he's also mentioned in the Mental Health series, that um, moving to the US, he's had the chance to take his son Archie on bike rides on the back of his bike, which is something he was never allowed to do as a member of the royal family, uh, except he was. And there are photographs showing him and his mother and father out on numerous occasions on bike rides with their children. Um, to be fair to Harry, I think what he was trying to do was make a wider point, saying that he wanted more freedom in his private life and moving to the US, to California, would give him that. But of course, um, you know, when there is cold, hard proof uh, to um, contradict what he's saying, it probably wasn't the best example to use. Well, the Palace have always gone with the never complain, never explain approach. Can we really expect that to carry on? Surely there'll be a tipping point. I know I've said this before, and I probably sound like a bit of a broken record, but Buckingham Palace genuinely do not want to get drawn into a public slanging match with Harry and Meghan. That said, they are poking the bear a lot, and, and people are right to wonder whether there will be a tipping point. Um, I don't think it will be any time soon. I think what they're hoping that will happen is that Harry will just burn himself out saying what he wants to say, whether it's because it's from the heart or because he wants vengeance or revenge. They're just hoping that he, he, he will say it, get it off his chest, and then move on. Now, they were hoping that would happen with the Oprah interview, and obviously we've now seen this mental health series in which, you know, other truth bombs, as they've been dubbed, have been lobbed at, at the royal family. Um, uh, the question is, is this going to be enough for him? Um, and the thing is, I suppose the question is, how would they fight back? You know, it, the Queen has already made very, very clear 
recollections vary on a lot of what they say, um, but she really wants to sort this out privately within the family. Um, and I think it would it, it would take a real sea change in their attitude to this to, to go against what the Queen has already said. Well, plenty to discuss, and it's time for me to bring in my esteemed panel. This week, I'm joined by historian writer Dr. Tessa Dunlop, and of course, uh, the Mail, uh, Mail Saturday Diary editor Richard Eden. Thank you both very much uh, for being with me. Richard, I'll start with you. I mean, the title of this new show, talk show, Where Do We Go From Here? I mean, it brings up the question, where do we go from here? Are they at a deadlock? I mean, I'm sure the royal family feel exactly the same thing. You know, where do we go from here? And it will be more exasperation, you know, when or they hear about this, this latest programme, I would have thought, because so far there hasn't been a single broadcast that Harry hasn't used to attack his family and make all sorts of accusations. I've watched the, the Apple series and, you know, it, in some ways it's very good. You know, I'm pleased that Harry has um, spoken about his, his mental health and his therapy and this type of thing, and that may be encouraging to other people, particularly men. But on the other hand, you know, why does he have to drag his family into it? Richard. You know, what about their mental health? All the time, he's just attacking them publicly. I just think it's so unfair and unpleasant. It's extraordinarily naive of you to expect him to do otherwise. We are the, the component parts of our upbringing. Our mental furniture is placed there, courtesy of from whence we've come. And he happens to have come from the most famous family on the planet. But almost all celebrities, when they talk about their pain, their mental health, they make reference to their family, to their upbringing. Harry's no exception. And you use the word attack there. Does he really attack them? Actually, in that Dak Shepherd podcast, it was a very fleeting reference to which he actually supplemented with it with an apology beforehand. You know, mm. he's just trying to explain why he's where he's at at the moment in this curious crossroads in a foreign country with a foreign wife feeling a little bit vulnerable. And he's doing some mansplaining. You know, and a lot of people are listening because he happens to be Prince Harry married to Meghan. I mean, my goodness, do you remember the criticism that the Duchess of York used to get when she gave a few interviews, yeah. even ones to Oprah? But she never spoke in this personal way about the royal family. She was always so complimentary about the Queen and her ex-husband. And, and, and it feels so, I feel so sort of guilty that people criticised her at the time. Um, you know, because it was nothing in comparison with this by Harry. But we're living in a different era. This yeah, is, it does you seem know, like it. Well, but, but we are, and, and mm. we're actually some of the agents of that change. We're constantly picking and meddling and looking for something to talk about, you know? And Harry is almost accidentally throwing us a bone because guess what? He needs to make a living. And how do you recommend an ex-prince keeps that giant Mexit juggernaut on the tracks? <laughs> By talking about his heritage. Mm. And Richard, what do you think? I mean, it's obviously great for the media to talk about all this, but how does it sort of play out for the image of the royal family? I mean, I think, to be honest, there's a lot of sort of weariness that people are not... They've kind of made up their minds almost about Harry and Meghan, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's doing much damage to the royal family here. They're going about their business, and we'll talk about that later in the programme, and doing what they've always done. But, um, and I'm not sure that, that how much damage it is doing. But, really Richard, not. what is the point of a royal family if it doesn't have a brand abroad? And when I say abroad, one of the biggest brands our royal family had was its popularity stateside. Mm. So, so if our royal family is only speaking now to Little England, what's the point of it? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, Princess Diana was a you know, huge global celebrity yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, but I do think that Harry's not necessarily being 
adored around the world. You know, lots of people um, take a sort of British view that they're um, they're uneasy about his attacks oh, on the royal on. family. Harry's driven a stake through the royal relationship with America. He has. I, no, I don't agree at all. Um, and I'm sure we'll see on the next visit to, um, you know, when Biden comes here or when um, British royal family visit um, America, we will see the, the strength of that relationship between the two countries. Watch the space. Watch the space indeed. And Tessa, you mentioned the Meghan juggernaut, Mexit yeah. juggernaut. Um, do you think that they still have respect for the Queen? There is a, a regrettable uh, flaw in their thesis, for want of a better expression, where they constantly say, you know, we love the Queen, the exception is the Queen, and fail to recognise she is the personification, the embodiment of all that the monarchy is and does. And so it doesn't work, that idea of separating her from the institution, because, I mean, I, and in fact, he himself drew attention to it, Harry, when he said it wasn't just the way his father parented him, but the way his father had been parented. So they're the product of the Queen's vision. So that, yeah, that, that's unfortunate. But let's hope that most superficial fans of Mexit and Harry and Meghan and the royal family don't dig that deep. They just see the glass and the love and the criticism and they go with the flow. <laughs> Fantastic American accent, Tessa. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> uh, now on to another story that continues to rumble on, of course, the fallout from Lord Dyson's report into the methods used by Martin Bashir to secure that interview with Princess Diana back in 1995. Mr Bashir has left the BBC, but is that enough of a sanction? Di Davis doesn't think so. He's a former chief superintendent in the Met Police and he was the head of security for the royal family. Well, he spoke to us earlier this week. When you are the BBC, when you have a global reputation for integrity, honesty and, and good reporting, I would want it cleared up. I know no other organisation that could call in an eminent judge, and nobody doubts his eminence or his ability to do an internal inquiry, when you have allegations going on of criminal behaviour by Mr Bashir and possibly others in the BBC. MPs have asked for it, the Justice Minister has suggested it. So what's holding everybody back? Perhaps there's more to this than we know. They had said they had looked into this, they'd taken legal advice, and it wasn't appropriate. Well, I simply don't understand that. And what I always say, unless you investigate, unless you take statements from credible witnesses like uh, Earl Spencer, like Mr Wiesman, who produced the documents, the bank documents, and many others, unless you actually get statements from them, you won't find evidence. And the CPS or any other lawyer can only advise on the evidence as presented. Now, to the best of my knowledge, and I may be corrected, the Met Police have not taken statements. Uh, Lord Spencer himself wrote back in January, uh, no one done so far the Met are actually articulating, yes, we will look at it again. What is holding them back? Um, if it was the News of the World or the Daily Mail, trust me, they would have had dawn raids, as they did going back a few years ago with, with various inquiries into the press and what have you. I just, I just don't understand it. In terms of the Director General's view that certain clips can still be shown, that gives me concern because in truth, he is aiding and abetting now a feature that was obtained by deception. If you take the platform of either the Fraud Act of 2006 or the Theft Act of 68, pecuniary advantage, 
now you've had the Proceeds of Crimes Act for many, many years, 20 years or more, you should then consider going after a criminal. But of course, in fairness, you've got to find him guilty in a court of law. As far as I'm concerned, um, he hasn't been. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to try him by, by media. I really want him to be investigated properly by a proper authority. And I come back to the judge's inquiry. He's a civilian, much eminent as though he is. He's a civilian. And those giving evidence of him, those who agreed to give evidence, and there was no compulsory aspect to it, um, none of them were, were, were interviewed under caution. Mr. Davy has got a job and a half, but I think he would be well advised to just start again and get the Met Police in here and on, insist on it and to provide proper evidence and then for the police to get off their backsides and go and take proper evidence and investigate. As with Prince Andrew, I've lambasted them because they don't seem to take evidence from key witnesses. And I make the same allegation now. Well, the BBC board have accepted Laws Dyson's findings in full and offered an apology to all of those affected by the failings identified. In a statement, they added that the board has confidence that the processes and guidelines in today's BBC are much stronger than they were in 1995. But they said they know we must also do what we can to prevent such an incident happening again. Well, a few weeks ago, Scotland Yard ruled out a criminal investigation, but let's see what our panel have to say about it. Uh, Richard, do you agree with Di? And how much do you think William and Harry's emotion will impact this? Um, I mean, certainly we saw a very powerful speech from Prince William about the BBC, a very statesmanlike but clearly angry speech, and we also saw a strongly worded statement for, from Harry. I don't know if they would um, support prosecutions. They didn't go that far. But certainly I agree with Di. I mean, you know, we had the man who's now the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, leading what was pretty much a witch hunt against journalists a few years ago. And people were being arrested in dorm raids for paying sources, paying officials, this type of thing. And it does seem a real contradiction that there hasn't been any police action in this case where you've got, there's no question about um, that forged documents were used in order to secure an interview. So it's, you know, it really does seem um, an interesting contrast, I'd say. There is a whiff of the establishment, is there not? I think uh, one of the key aspects was the absolute failure of the BBC's own internal inquiry. And it's not the first BBC internal inquiry that's failed to uh, dish the dirt, for want of an expression, on themselves. I think more broadly, there is a big issue where the key protagonist is no longer with us. Diana mm. is dead, which would make legal proceedings going forward very difficult. I think there's also an, another broader issue, two in fact. One is the two sons' statements were very, very different. William was clear. He never wants that documentary aired again, which is arguably, given we don't know the extent to which Diana and her interview was, was impacted by the forged evidence is a really tricky one for freedom of speech. That's Diana's voice. And in mm. Harry's statement, no mention of not wanting um, this documentary aired again. He didn't offer an opinion on that. Instead, he said he wanted his mother's legacy and her voice to continue being heard. So it, it, ne'er the twain will meet. William wants to make this better and make it go away. Because remember, effectively, Diana criticized the family he loves and belongs to. Mm. Harry on the outside, that's not in his interests. 
you know, actually the Diana he's holding on to is the Diana that criticised the establishment, that criticised the institution of monarchy. And I thought the difference we saw in those statements last Friday was, was very interesting and bodes a bit ill, actually, for the unveiling of the Diana statue next yes. month. Don't look so pleased about that. You to look too together. pleased about the idea of um, that not, not coming together. I suspect the speeches they make on that occasion will, will be very different views of their mother as well. And of course, a huge, you know, everyone wants justice, but do you think there will be some among the royal family who are also sort of maybe quietly hoping this might just sort of go away? Some? I think most of them. And actually what's interesting is, you know, we sit here every week, what is the point of the royal family in a democratic era? It's about boosting Britain's image to an extent, as is the BBC. It's again mm. one of Britain's most famous brands. And what we've seen recently is a royal brand taking a tumble and the BBC, our biggest media organisation, taking a battering. It's not looking great for Brexit Britain right now. Hmm. It will be interesting to see if there's any sort of measures taken by the royal family against the BBC. Um, because after the original Diana interview, you know, the royal family was furious and the Queen stopped giving her Christmas broadcast automatically mm. to the BBC. After that, it was shared among the different broadcasters. Do you think she might be giving it to Mel um, Plus in the future? <laughs> so Let's we'll keep see. our fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see what changes there are. Well, watch this space on that one. And moving on to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, who got away this week as they headed up to Scotland, visiting their alma mater, St Andrews University, as well as numerous charities around the country. Rebecca English has been keeping an eye on the pair. She gave her thoughts on whether the tour made amid COVID restrictions will be seen as a success. Yes, well, as we know, they've been on a week-long tour of Scotland, William on his own to start off with, and then joined by Kate on Monday. And certainly, as regards coverage in the papers, television, and the reaction on social media, it does seem to have been a success. I mean, obviously, there are people in Scotland uh, who are pro-independence and dislike the monarchy, and I've, I've certainly, on my timeline, on things like Twitter, have been receiving messages from them. But they actually have been pretty few and far between, I would say. Um, and I think maybe that's down to the fact that um, they kind of haven't gone swanning around in, you know, fancy cars and planes, you know, amid kind of great pomp and ceremony. This whole trip has been very, very carefully planned and it's about getting down to grassroots levels, speaking to people, thanking people in the community who've gone above and beyond in the pandemic. You know, their, their diary has been very, very carefully curated and I think that has reaped benefits for them. And given recent election results and the still strong desire for independence north of the border, is it fair to say that a lot of this trip was about promoting the union? It's probably helpful to put a bit of background here. So this trip was due to take place last year. Um, the Queen always every year appoints a Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and last year it happened to be William. Obviously, because of coronavirus, that was cancelled and it was it was postponed till this year. So uh, I suppose I suppose what I'm saying it's quite a happy coincidence that it's taking place now. Um, that said, um, there's no doubt that by bringing Kate up to join him. And uh, having such a, a really high profile um, engagement diary this week, that it will be seen as a charm offensive. Um, and you'll note that in his speech when he opened the assembly on uh, Saturday, William really made great show of the royal family's links with Scotland, how much they enjoy the time they spend up there. I think he said that it's 
it's it's intrinsically tied with some of the happiest and also some of the saddest memories of his life, the fact that he was at Balmoral when he learned that his mother died. So they have really tried to make this a very, very personal trip. And I, and I don't think that is by coincidence. Tessa, do you think world trips like these actually antagonise those who do want independence? Funnily enough, I think Kate and William, I grew up my first 20 years in Scotland speaking like this. Right, so I know how an English accent goes down north of the border and things have got worse, not better. Right. Um, but I think Kate and William are so vanilla that actually this is... It's, it's almost gone under the radar. I rang my mum this morning to test the water. She said, I haven't really noticed they've been here. You know, so on the one hand, OK, they've not been pilloried in the press. In fact, I noticed the big nationalist newspaper called The Nationalist. It was at The National, called The National. Um, the only thing they could really complain was um, one, I think, was Sky's reference to the Orkneys as being remote, you know, because Kay and William visited um, the island of, of Orkney, the Isle of Orkney. Um, so I thought, well, if that's all they can criticise, then they're not doing so badly. But on the other hand, you need traction to have agency to make a difference, to embellish those cultural ties between Scotland and England. Kay and Will's have to pack a punch and I think that's the problem it's a bit of a who cares mm, so slightly Richard do you think they didn't make much traction I mean they were in Scotland also before Christmas and they didn't receive that good press then tell us about that no well that was because their trip was during the pandemic and um, the um, Prime Minister um, Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland first minister. First minister, first minister. Sorry, um, she made clear that she didn't Sassanac. think their trip, their trip was essential. That was really the problem, and she was trying to discourage travel between England and Scotland. Um, but they've had a much warmer welcome this time, and I've loved this trip. It's been fantastic following the the progress, and there's been some really lovely incidents with them sort of racing on the beach in their sand yachts and um seemed like they had fun kate djing it seems to be really fun so um i'm not that familiar with how much coverage it's got north of the border but i'm sure it's been very positive and you know despite what tessa says i think um you know the monarchy's safe with um in in scotland very much so i mean even however um nationalist um, they are. They, they've not wanted to be Republican. You know, Nicola Sturgeon has always made clear that even uh, in the unlikely prospect of a sort of independent Scotland, they would still try and retain mm -hmm. the royal family. It's so, you know, they know, she, you know, she appreciates the popularity mm -hmm. of the royal family. And I think that's, that's safe with um, William and Catherine. I, I would suggest, Richard, with respect, that you as an Englishman have enjoyed watching what two quintessentially English people, really. I mean, they're sort of chiselled in the home counties, aren't they, William and Kate? Uh, you've enjoyed watching them against the, the Scottish vista. You know, it's very beautiful Scotland, and it's a nice reminder that we're all in the same, you know, British basket at the moment. But more broadly, actually, yeah, the Queen can still pack a punch in Scotland. You can't not respect the Queen, and she has deep and visceral connections to Scotland through her mother's line, through her father's line, and through Balmoral. I think that's been wearing a little thin and increasingly this century I think the royal family's become an English family. No, the yeah. Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, you know, they are they're really a Scottish couple. You know, that they, they met, they she fell in love lovely in Scotland. If it wasn't for Scotland, they wouldn't they wouldn't even be oh, together. Come on. So and that's the sort of hobby that posh English people do, go and study in Edinburgh or St Andrews. I mean from a, from the point of view of most Scots, it's a wee bit pat a wee bit. 
It's a weird, and I've already tried the American accent. I should just show the accents really. today. But, but, but it's a bit patronising, isn't it? Oh, let, let we have a little special place for little Scotland. I mean, it's I, it's absolute nightmare for the royal family because it's not their fault that the politics has blown up around them. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying it's a tough gig, and I'm not sure Wills and Kate have have it in their arsenal to be able to to douse down the, the, the bigger issues between England and Scotland. No, I think most of them have made clear that they're never happier than when at Balmoral and in Scotland. And, um, you know, William um, made a speech this week about how much Scotland meant to him. So I really don't agree with Tessa at all, I'm afraid. Well, they went back to their uni, they had local fish and chips, they got ice cream. You probably think that William went for vanilla flavour, Tessa. Possibly. Look, I don't, I don't want to speak ill of Wills and Kate. They do their bit and they're all right. And it's just, let's not pretend that they're going to save the union, because they ain't. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, royal fans, and we assume that there are just a few of you watching, might be interested in a new exhibition coming to Kensington Palace. It's called Royal Style in the Making, and Rebecca English told us about the thinking behind the exhibition. Royal fashion is something that has intrigued people and uh, entranced people for centuries. Um, and this exhibition is all about the really close working relationship between couturiers and their royal clients. And it's really a fascinating insight into how fashion is used as part of the royal family's uh, legendary soft diplomacy. Well, one of the biggest straws, surely it's got to be Diana's wedding dress. That train must need a rim of its own. Absolutely. The star of the show will be Diana, Princess of Wales's wedding dress. And this is no coincidence, but of course, in July, we will uh, see events to mark what would have been her 60th birthday. Um, and how intriguing is that? What, what kind of woman would she have become? Um, what would her relationships be like at the royal, you know, with the royal family now, uh, with some passing of time, had she been alive? So I think those thoughts will be going through people's minds when they come to see the wedding dress that she wore when she was just 19, when she married into the royal family. And obviously that Emmanuel dress is very much of its time, Flat Bouncy, frilly, uh, you know, it, it drew um, it drew its admirers and detractors, you know, in the 1980s. But it's something that has become a hugely historic image, and it will be fascinating to see it in the flesh. I think. Absolutely. And Rebecca, what are some of the other highlights? Well, what I think is going to be so fascinating about this is we don't just see the kind of end result, these, these iconic frocks. We'll also see the process leading up to them. So we see the sketches, the photographs, the fabric swatches, all the thought that goes into one of these iconic outfits. There'll also be the twirl uh, for the late Queen Mother's coronation gown. Um, so there's going to be a whole array of items which will really bring the whole process of royal fashion to life. Thank you very much for that, Rebecca. And of course, you can visit Royal Style in the Making at Kensington Palace from the 3rd of June. My thanks to all of our guests this week, Rebecca English, Richard Eden, Dr. Tessa Dunlop and Di Davies. Come back next week for more royal news and views. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Palace Confidential newsletter to get weekly royal updates straight into your inbox. To sign up, go to the link on the screen now. We'll see you next time. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential.